But I'm really excited to be back with you today and, and to start a new message series. You may not know what to think because I'm not going to talk about Nehemiah at all today. I'm not even going to, like nothing about Nehemiah. We're going we're gonna to take a whole new slant. We're going to move into the New Testament and talk about something that I think we, we talk about a lot, we sing about a lot, but I wonder how much we understand and think about the depth of what it does in our life. We're going to talk about grace for a few weeks. And grace is a word that we use in church a lot, we sing about, um, but I don't know if we really understand. I, I, I was beginning to think about maybe how we approach grace the way I approach cars, the way I approach vehicles. There, there are different kinds of understanding when it comes to cars. When somebody like me... I have the kind of understanding that what I understand about how a car works is that I put gasoline in it, and it goes. And that's about it. That's about all I can tell you about how a car works. But we know good and well there's a whole lot more that happens to make a car work. Now, some of you have a greater understanding, a deeper understanding of, what, um, of how a car works, not just putting gas in it and it goes, but you understand, once you put that gas in the vehicle, what happens to the gas? What, what track does it go through? What, what components in the car does it activate to make the car go? How do the mechanics of the car move me from where I am to where I want to be? All of those kind of things. There's some of you in here that know and could explain a little bit of that. So there's that kind of knowledge about how cars work. And then there's the kind of knowledge that I have, basically that I can put gas in my car and sit in it and push the pedal and it goes. And, that's, and, and, and in some cases, that's all I need to know. But what I want us to do with grace, I think that maybe sometimes we have an understanding of grace that's like that. We sing about grace, we talk about grace, and all we know is that, that we're saved by grace. But what I want to invite us to do over the next few weeks, if, if you'll pardon the illustration, I want us to get under the hood, okay? I want us to open up the hood and look at grace, look at this thing that saves us, that, that brings us into a relationship with God, and just really examine it. And look at how amazing it is because we sing that song, the most famous most prevalent hymn everybody knows. You, you don't even have to go to church to know the song Amazing Grace. And we sing about how amazing it is, but do we really know? Do we really know how amazing it is? Do we know why the song that Danny led us in worshiping in? Do we understand why what he sang about was so amazing? And that's what I want us to do over these next few weeks. Because we use the word grace in lots of different ways. Right? Think about how you use the word grace just in your common everyday language. Sometimes grace means a favor, right? Sometimes grace means uh, it's a favor shown for, um, for I, I may ask you for a favor in grace. Have you ever said, some, said to somebody, hey, can you just show me some grace and do this for me? And that's like inviting, saying, I need something. There's a favor I need from you for, for my benefit for my pleasure um all of us pay bills and there's usually a thing with most a lot of our bills that we pay uh and our mortgages and our car payments that's called a grace period right 
And that's that 10 to 15 days they give us a due date when our payment's supposed to be due. But they understand that things happen sometimes. And so there's a 10 to 15 day period, depending on what kind of payment you're making, that says, hey, if you don't have all the money or you can't make that payment dead on this date, we'll give you 10 days here or there to make that payment without charging you a penalty, without throwing a late fee on you. So we, we, we talk about grace periods a lot. When we, when we talk about something being graceful, we're usually talking about something that's beautiful, right? Uh, something that um, is appealing, attractive. Someone can dance gracefully. They can, they can sing gracefully. Um, you know, those kind of things. Um, art, performance, that sort of thing. We can look at it and say it, it's, it's graceful. It's attractive. And those are all proper ways to use the word grace, but those are all secular meanings of the word grace. But when we open up God's word and we talk about grace in the context of the story of Scripture, we find that that the New Testament has a distinctive thing that it's talking about. When the Bible talks about grace, it uses it in a very specific way. And that's what I want us to look at today and really... at the, at the core of what I want us to do today is to just really get a good, deep definition of what grace is. Okay, so I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be looking today. And we're gonna, I'm going to give you a lot of notes today. So you guys who like to take notes, you're going to enjoy it because I'm going to put it all on the screen for you. And the reason I want to do that is because I want these to be things that you can go back and reflect on. I don't want you to have to go back and say, well, I can't remember what he said under this one or under this one. I've just kind of laid it all out for you. I want you to be able to write it down, and I want it to be something you are able to go back and reflect on during the week. But Ephesians chapter 2 is a really important um, passage to understand grace. So let's start with verse 1 and look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and there are six chapters in Ephesians. And you can almost take Ephesians and split it right down the middle. The first three chapters, Paul is talking about theology. He's talking about theological things and says, this is the right things to believe. He's focusing on doctrine. In, in chapters 1 through 3. But then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he takes that theological base that he builds and he begins to talk about how that's worked out practically in our lives. Because to believe the right thing in and of itself isn't enough. We have to practice that right theology that we have. And so this is chapter 2. So this is right in the middle of that theological framework that, that Paul is trying to build so that, so that the church can have a right understanding because, again, most of the letters in the New Testament are written in response to bad teaching, 
false teaching and bad theology. And so, so Paul is trying to correct that. So these first three verses are very important in understanding grace. And, and uh, you'll see that. We're not going to just jump right into talking about the grace of God. Because, and, and Paul, the reason is because Paul doesn't. In chapter 2, these first three verses, Paul tells us about ourselves. That's the very first thing he does. He says, in, in explaining grace, before we can understand the grace of God, we have to understand who we are. So here are these points I want you to remember. First, he tells us about ourselves. Number one, what this passage tells us is that we're spiritually dead because of our sinful nature, not because of our sinful deeds. Now, that may, you may have to take that in for a minute. We're spiritually dead. We are lost without Christ because of our sinful nature, not because of our sinful deeds. But, and, and why do we say that? Because verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He doesn't say you are, you are spiritually dead from the trespasses or because of the trespasses. You're not dead because of the bad things you do. You did bad things because you were dead. Okay? This is, this is important. We're spiritually dead because of our sinful nature. The sins in our life didn't produce the sinful nature. The sinful nature produced the sin. Okay? So it starts there. Um, if, if it were the other way around... You say, well, why is that important to make that distinction? If it were the other way around, it would be possible to avoid being a sinner by not sinning. Right? If, if our spiritual death came because we did bad things, then there would be a way for us to avoid spiritual death by just stop doing bad things. Right? So that's an important, that's a really small detail that's really important for us to understand. We're, we're not dead because we sin. We, we sin because we're dead. And there's nothing you can do. Um, you can't say, I am a sinner because I sin. No, that's not right. You sin because you are a sinner. Do you understand the difference? So we're sinners because of our nature, not because of our deeds. Here's number two. He says in verses two and three, we live in obedience to another authority. And that authority is Satan. This is what I find ironic about us and our hearts and our, and our minds when we are lost without Christ. We think in our lostness that independence from Christ is freedom. We think, uh, and you know people like that, the reason they, they don't want to follow Jesus is why? Because they want to be in control, right? And that's one of the things that often keeps us from giving our lives over to Christ because we think we're in control of our life. You know what Paul says? You're not. We say, I don't want anybody to be a boss over me. I don't want anybody telling me what I have to do and being Lord over my life. I like being my own Lord. Guess what? Paul says you already have a Lord over your life. But it ain't Jesus. So many people believe that, that freedom, I can make my own rules, I can do what I want. 
Paul says here, no, no, you can't. He says in verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So if you don't follow Jesus, you still follow somebody. You're not, you're not neutral. You're not free. You're not your own boss, even if you think you are. So before Christ, we're dead because of our sinful nature, and that sinful nature causes us to live in obedience. Literally, Paul says, obedience to Satan who temporarily rules the world that we live in. And here's number three. Our nature is hostile towards God. Verse three, it says, we, we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was once us. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. I sometimes hear people say, well, you know what? We're all God's children. And usually when they say that, they're talking about everybody. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, they're basically talking about humanity. And they're saying, well, and, and somebody would say that and say, well, we're all God's children. And I can understand. It, it depends, though, on what you're talking about, whether that statement's true or not. If you're talking about the fact that we are all created by God, that we are all human and we are image bearers of God, that, we, that, that, that we're made by him, and you think about children like literally as offspring, like, like he created us so we're his children, then you might could get away with that. But it is not true in our relationship to him. And this, is, and this is another place in many places in the New Testament that should remind us that, that if we are living in opposition, in, if we are living without committing our lives to Christ, we're not neutral. Or we, are, we are living, our nature is hostile towards God. We are enemies of God. And people say all the time, well, I don't, I, I don't have anything against God. I don't have anything about, against Jesus. I just don't want to follow him. And they think they're neutral. But, but you're not. We're, we're hostile. Our nature is hostile toward God. So Paul uses these first three verses in this passage very effectively to show us who, who we are without Christ because this is part of what this is part of how we understand how grace is so amazing grace isn't that amazing if we're good people grace isn't that big of a deal if we're capable of getting rid of our own sin by by stopping the bad deeds in our life if we're if we're neutral and we're okay on neutral ground with God if we're all of these things, then grace isn't such a big deal. But Paul says grace is a big deal because none of those other things are true. We are enemies of God. 
We are dead in our trespasses, and we are in obedience and under the authority of Satan himself without Christ. So he shows us who we are. Now let's keep going. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians 2. Two of the greatest words in the whole Bible. But God, rich, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, as he just told us in verse 1, even while, while we were dead, when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you see what Paul does in verses 1, 2, and 3. He shows us a picture of who we are. And then in verse 4, that phrase that transitions everything, but God. So he says, I've, I've explained, I've been talking about who we are. Like this is what God has to work with in us in verses 1 through 3. But let me tell you what he did with it. And he starts in verse 4 and says, but God. It's that transition. So now he's going to tell us how different God is. Okay, verses 1 through 3, he said, this is who we are, but now, but God, he's about to do a contrast for you English teachers, like there's compare and contrast. He's, he's, he's presented who we are, now he's going to do a contrast and say, but God, let me show you how different God is. So here's what Paul tells us about God, how different he is in these verses. Here's number one, that God's mercy is rich. Verse 4, it says he is rich in mercy. That word rich means wealthy or abundantly supplied. And we think of it in terms of money and, and wealth and those kind of things. But he says God's mercy is rich. Think, think about our nature. What Paul is doing here is he said this is the nature of who you are. You are sinful, you're children of wrath, and you live in disobedience to God. That's who you are. But let me tell you who God is. God is rich in mercy. You know what that means? That he has so much mercy, he's never going to need more. <laughs> There's never a moment where God is going to get to a point where his mercy tank gets low and he's like, you know what, i got to do something to muster up some more mercy for you because you are exhausting me. That's not what that, that's exactly, he says he is rich in mercy. There will always be enough. He can't run out of it. There's never going to be a need for more mercy in the heart of God. It's rich. It's full. So he says God's mercy is rich. Number two, God's love is great. In verses 4 and 5. And it's great. And that word great literally means many, much, or really large. It's a different word than, than rich. But he says his, his love is great. It's almost like numerically. Where God's mer rich mercy 
comes because of his great love. Because mercy is like an action, right? When we show mercy to somebody, we choose to withhold something that is, could be rightfully given. A punishment. You deserve to be punished, but I'm going to withhold that punishment from you. That's mercy. You say, well, well, what motivates the mercy of God? Why does God choose? Because we are children of wrath, as Scripture says. Why does he choose to withhold that wrath in mercy? Because his love is great. The love of God and the mercy of God go together. They go hand in hand. His rich mercy is because of his great love. Do you see that? And then here's number three. God's love and mercy aren't based on our actions or on our nature. Okay, so, so do you see where we're trying to make a connection from those first three verses into these verses? Because he says... Even when you were dead in your trespasses, what kind of good deeds can dead people do? None. You were dead in your trespasses, and he made us alive with Christ. He took you when you were dead and couldn't do anything, and he brought you to life. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He didn't just bring you back to life. He raised you up to where he was. What an amazing thing. But his love and his mercy aren't based on our actions. His love for you is beyond you. You understand that? See, it's hard for us as humans to understand that because that's not how our love operates. That's not how our mercy operates. Who are the people that we tend to be most merciful to? The ones who are merciful to us. Who are the people that we show the most love to? The ones who love us, right? Who are the people that you struggle to love? The people who don't express love to you. You struggle to show mercy to people who never show mercy to you. And so you want to withhold it. What Paul is showing us here is that God pours out his mercy... He provides mercy for us because of a love that he has for us, an affection for us that has nothing to do with who we are or what we do. But the who we are was in verses 1 through 3. <laughs> and he says, I, the way I feel about you and my actions toward you are regardless of that. It's beyond you. We were made alive because of his love not our nature and not our actions. You remember Romans 5 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait on you to wake up and then die for you. Like he he sacrificed himself for you, extended mercy in his love while you didn't even know who he was. And here's number four God's grace moves his love. To act in mercy. God saves us from the wrath that we deserve. By what? Grace, the scripture says. Right in the middle of that passage. By grace, you have been saved. 
in verse 5, again, says we were made alive because we were dead. So God has this great love, and because of that, he is rich in mercy. So his love, his affection for us, motivates him to act in mercy towards us. And both of those things together, working together, become the grace of God. So here's a, here's a, a definition, something that, that we're, we can camp out on for grace. Grace is that quality of God's nature that compels him to give free gifts to undeserving sinners. When we talk about the grace of God, what we're talking about is a character trait, an, an, something in the nature of who he is. And we've talked about already and seen what our nature is. It's evil, it's dirty, it's corrupt. It's disobedient, but there's God. And he has this character, this nature in him that's called grace. And that grace in God compels him to look at us, who we are, and say, you know what, I'm going to freely give you something you don't deserve, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. In verse 7, in that passage, if we go back, it says, so that, that he has done this, he's raised us up, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. You know that God's grace is not just for your benefit and my benefit. It's for his own glory. God's grace, that, that character, that nature in him, he shows it to us. And he extends it so that his glory can just be greater. So do you see the connections here? Do you see what Paul is doing? He's contrasting, this is who you are. This is how you operate. But look how drastically different God is. Look what grace does in response to you. You who don't deserve anything. And the key word in that definition that I just gave you, go back to that definition. That key word is undeserving. And that in itself will show us how different God is from us. Because we choose to give out love and give out mercy and give out grace. We think it's grace. We call it grace. But we dish out our version of grace based on what we think somebody deserves. And what we have to come to understand is grace, by definition, isn't something that is given because it's deserved. If whatever you're giving to somebody is based on what you think they deserve, you may call it grace, but it's not grace. Because that's not the definition of grace. So let's finish it. Verses 8 and 9. This is the, these are the verses that everybody knows. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
You remember back in the beginning, because our sin, we're, we're sinners because of our nature, not because of our deeds. If we could uncenterize ourselves, if that's even a word, I just made that up. If we could do that, then we would have the ability to be able to boast and say, hey, I was able to make myself not a sinner faster than you. I got my act together. I stopped sinning before you. I stopped sinning better than you. You're still struggling. Bless your heart, you're still a sinner, but I'm not because I figured it out. Paul corrects that thinking. And as crazy as that sounds, and as much as you chuckled when I just said that, how many of us operate that way on a daily basis? How many people in this world think that that's what's going to make them righteous before God? I can get my act together. I can do enough good things. It's so impossible. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are saved when we respond to God's grace, that, that thing about his character that, where he says, I'm going to give you free gifts when you don't deserve them. That's his grace. And we are saved when we respond to his grace through what? Faith. Faith is belief and trust. And when that belief and trust is genuine and real and full, it will produce a change in our life. Grace changes everything. And when we embrace it and we see it and we, and we surrender to it, it, it changes us. And, and this is the connection I want you to see. And I've written this down and... and I hope it makes sense. This is one of those things that makes sense in my head, but I'm trying real hard to make it make sense in yours. Just as sinful actions didn't produce our sinful nature, right? Are you with me there? Our sin nature was the source of our sinful actions. So if that's true about sin, then a changed life can't produce salvation either. But our salvation is the source of our changed life. You see the connection there? And I, and I really think that this connection is, is in this. And I think Paul's making this connection on purpose. He says your deeds is not, your, your, your sinful deeds came from your sinful nature. So the same thing is true with our salvation. We can't change our life and produce salvation any more than our evil deeds produced our sinful nature. You see? Deeds can't lead us, can't, deeds are not the source of our sinful nature, nor can our good deeds be the source of our salvation. It's, it's, it's like a mirror principle. A changed life won't produce salvation, but our salvation is the source of our changed life. You won't have a really changed life without salvation without a faith response to God's grace. So these are the differences here. Now I want us to, to look at, I want to give you three things as we're kind of wrapping up to looking at the nature of God's grace. I, I really hope and pray that you'll walk out of here with a, with a little deeper, different understanding of what grace is. And that when you sing about it, and when you hear songs on the radio this week, and we come into worship all through these messages and we, and we sing the word grace, that that word grace will just echo these things 
in your mind, and you'll, and you'll come to a deeper understanding. So the nature of God's grace, there's three things. Number one, it's always undeserved. Always undeserved. For us to have a proper understanding of grace, we've got to get out of our mind that there's something that we can do to make God want to give it to us. The truth is he already has given it before you did anything. Like it's already in him. It, grace is in him. It belongs to him. And it comes out and it's always undeserved. If we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 23. We know Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23 tells us that nobody deserves it. Because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But look at verse 24. So many times we read verse 23 and we stop there. For, the, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at verse 24. And are justified by his what? Grace as a what? Gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I don't think I ever want to quote Romans 3.23 anymore without quoting verse 24. Because they go together. His grace is a gift. It's undeserved. Now, we give gifts to people, or what we think are gifts, based on how we think they deserve them, but they're not gifts. They're awards. And there's a difference between a gift and an award, right? You win a race, you work hard, you, you, your team gets to the end, and you get a trophy. That trophy's not a gift. Because you did something to earn it. It's an award. It's a trophy. Salvation isn't an award. It's not a trophy. It's not something that you worked really hard and at the end you got. That's not what it is. It's a gift. And the reason it's a gift is because you don't deserve it and there's nothing you can do to deserve it. It's always undeserved. Grace is always undeserved. If, it, if it's deserved, it's not grace. You get it? So grace is always undeserved. Number two, it can only be given. It can never be earned. Same kind of principle. I kind of creeped into it already, but it's a little bit different. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Paul is, is, is talking to you and he says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise... Grace would no longer be grace. That's exactly what he's saying. We have to understand that when we say grace, it means that it's always undeserved, and grace is only something that can be given by God. It's nothing that can ever, ever be earned. And it's because of the nature of what grace is. I'm going to say this to you, and maybe it'll help you make sense. You can't earn grace any more than you can smell the number eight. Can you, anybody ever smell, what does number eight smell like? You don't know. You know why? Because that's not the nature of the number eight. You can't smell the number eight because it's a number. Saying that we can earn grace is like saying you can smell a number. They're completely, fundamentally different. It can't be earned. Earning grace is as crazy as saying you can smell a number. Makes no sense. 
And here's number three. This is the greatest thing of all. Sin can never overcome it. No quality or quantity of sin can ever overcome grace. That's how amazing grace is. Um, Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Let me show this to you. It says, but the what? Free gift, there it is again, is not like the trespass, which is our sin, right? For it... For if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. You say, okay, there's a lot of shuns in that word, in that verse. Those verses have lots of shuns and big theological words. Let me try to, let me try to help you understand what he's saying here. He's again contrasting. He says, grace, the gift of salvation, is not like the curse of sin. And this is why. The punishment for one sin led to the condemnation of all people, right? The, con- the, the sin of Adam led to the condemnation of all. That's why we are born with the sin nature. Because of all it took was one act of one man to condemn us all. To bring condemnation to all. But grace came through one person, right? And that was Jesus. Grace is extended and brought to us through Jesus after all of that multitude of sin. So if one sin was enough to condemn us all, how much sin has there been since then? So much. Uh, just a, a innumerable, we can't even think about how much sin. But the grace that came through one man was enough to lead to the justification of everyone who believes, no matter how much sin there is. You see that? That's the difference. That's what he's saying. So, the grace that comes to us through Jesus can never be overcome by sin. It doesn't matter how much. The sin of one man was enough to condemn us all. But the grace that came through one man was enough to cover all of that sin that resulted. So who are you to think you are too guilty for God to give grace to? Because there's so many who believe that. There's so many that have heard and and believed the message of the world. God could never forgive you. That's a lie, Satan. That grace isn't for you. You're too bad. You've messed up too much. You're too broken. There's too many things wrong with you. There's no quality of sin or no quantity of sin that can ever overcome grace because it's too big. When you encounter the grace of God in Jesus' life, in his death, and in his resurrection, everything changes. 
And so in thinking about grace this morning and all of these things that we've talked about, I want you to think about, have you ever really come face to face with this kind of grace? Have you ever experienced this kind of grace? Because what I want to say to you in in wrapping up all of these thoughts, if whatever grace you think you were saved by, if you thought you deserved it, it wasn't grace. If you thought you had done enough to earn it, it wasn't grace. And if you've, if you've come face to face with a grace that you thought wasn't big enough to cover all of your sin, then that wasn't really grace either. This is grace.